I'd like to invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. Luke uh, chapter 3, and I'd like to begin reading in verse 1 down to verse 17. And so let us once again give ear to the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired word. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Tronconitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the, word, in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. And be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor. And to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as as your word is proclaimed today, that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, boys and girls, I probably don't need to remind you that this week is Christmas. But maybe one thing that you didn't know is that December 25th actually isn't Jesus's birthday. At least it probably isn't. Truth be told, we don't know when Jesus's birthday was because the Bible doesn't tell us. 
And the reason why traditionally people have celebrated the birth of Jesus on December 25th is because a long time ago, the church decided to celebrate it on that day to replace a, a very popular pagan holiday. And so they wanted people celebrating a, a Christian holiday versus a pagan one. But really, we don't need to wait until December 25th to celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, every Sunday should be Christmas. Every Sunday should be Good Friday. Every Sunday should be Easter as we, we, as we meet weekly to be reminded and to give thanks for the birth, life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But since even our, our society today, since everybody is thinking about the birth and arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ, about his first coming here on earth, I thought it'd be fitting to take a break from 1 Corinthians uh, from our, past, our study of 1 Corinthians, and to look here in, in Luke chapter 3, as Luke describes the ministry of John the Baptist, who was Jesus' o- older cousin, as he prepared the way for the arrival of the Lord. Our passage begins with Luke uh, uh, beginning his narrative in the custom of uh, other ancient historians of the day, by situating the context, by situating the events according to who was sitting on the throne at the time. It's often how they would uh, determine the date of a particular event by saying, this is who was ruling at the particular time. It's, by the way, as a, as, uh, just as a side note, that's why, uh, in addition to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, that's why Pontius Pilate finds his way into the Apostles' Creed. You may have wondered, why is it that he's listed in here to situate it in history, to remind us of the fact that these are not myths, these are not fairy tales. Luke doesn't begin his story by saying once upon a time in a land far, far away, but he situates the, the story in history. And as we look uh, at all of these rulers, Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate and Herod and the others, we're able to approximate the date of these events uh, anywhere between the mid to the late 20s A.D. So technically, this isn't a Christmas sermon because Jesus is about 30 years old at this time. But what we see here is, first and foremost, he talks about John the baptizer as he prepares a way for the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another thing that we're reminded of is uh, in, in Luke's intro to the story is that we have a stark reminder of the fact that the people of God were living under Roman occupation. You see, they were not a sovereign nation at the time. There was not a son of David sitting on the throne ruling in Jerusalem, but they were being occupied and governed by the Gentiles. And so although the people of God had been restored from Babylonian exile, Even though they were living within the land of promise, they nevertheless, in a very real sense, were living in exile because they had uh, uh, the wicked Gentiles ruling over them. Another uh, stark reminder we have is in verse 2, where we're told about Annas and Caiaphas being high priests at the time. Now, the high priesthood during this time was also appointed by the Romans. They determined who would be high priest. And Annas, who technically served as high priest from A.D. 6 to A.D. 14, and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, was high priest from A.D. 18 to A.D. 36, 
uh, Luke can talk about both of them being high priest at the same time because Annas, he was kind of the head honcho. He's the one who, although technically wasn't high priest, he maintained the, the title and dignity and respect as the high priest. But as we will continue to find out, if you continue reading the gospel stories, you find out that these men were not pious, they were not godly, righteous high priests, but they were wicked, power-hungry men who ultimately were responsible for the condemnation and crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the word of God was not coming from places you might expect during this time. It wasn't coming from the high priest. It wasn't coming forth from the temple, but rather the word of God came in the wilderness. And it came, the word of God came not to the high priest, but to the son of a run-of-the-mill yet faithful priest, Zechariah. Here we're introduced to John out in the wilderness, who is a prophet of God. Even as we sing today in the song of Zechariah, he says, you, my son, will be a prophet to prepare the way of the Lord. Here we see a fulfillment of that prophecy of his father, Zechariah. And John's message was very simple. It was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And as a sign and seal of that repentance and the forgiveness of sins, John was baptizing people in the Jordan River. It's important to understand the significance of John baptizing people because up until this point in Judaism, it was common for a Gentile who would convert to Judaism, uh, it was common for him to undergo ceremonial washings. But what's significant for John is that he wasn't just baptizing Gentiles. He was exhorting his fellow Jews to be baptized, to undergo this ceremonial washing, to show that they too needed to repent and confess their sins. That's sort of the, the scandalous thing that John was doing out in the wilderness. And Luke tells us that John's ministry was, in fact, uh, uh, that this ministry was, was a, in preparation for the coming of the Lord. It was, in fact, a fulfillment of a prophecy spoken by the prophet Isaiah, as Luke, in our passage, quotes from Isaiah chapter 40. Now, those of you who are familiar with the book of Isaiah, you'll know that chapter 40 marks a turning point in the book. Up until that point, for the most part, with a few exceptions, for the most part, Isaiah's message was a message of doom and gloom. It was a message of judgment and impending destruction of God's people for their sin. But Isaiah chapter 40 marks a turning point as the message turns from one of doom and gloom to one of comfort for God's people. It begins by saying, uh, it begins by saying, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So, so, that, so although the prophet Isaiah spoke of impending judgment, the fact that the Babylonians would come and destroy Jerusalem and send them off to exile, he also spoke words of comfort in the form of a restoration of God's people, that he would bring them, he would gather them from all the nations to which he scattered them and bring them back to his land. Isaiah 40 speaks about that in verse 10, where it says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, 
His reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And so that's really the context of Isaiah chapter 40. But the particular passage, the particular portion that Luke quotes in our passage today speaks of the preparation for the coming of the Lord. The Lord's going to come. He's going to gather his people uh, as a shepherd gathers his sheep. But preparations need to be made. And that's what the passage speaks of uh, in Luke chapter 3, preparing the way of the Lord. And really what, what this preparation looks like is road improvement. Boys and girls, in the ancient world, when a king would make his way to, to visit uh, the lands over which he ruled, there would be people sent in advance to prepare the way for the king. And this is before there were freeways. This is before there were uh, asphalt. And so oftentimes the roads would become very difficult. If you've ever gone off-roading, you know that uh, the, the road often will get bumpy. And so what would they do? Well, they would smooth over rough places. They would take portions of the road that had become crooked and they would make it straight. They would level high areas and they would bring up low areas so that the way would be prepared for the king so that it would be a smooth ride for the king to make his way into the city. And that's essentially the job of John the Baptist. As Jesus the king is going to make his arrival, he needs to prepare the road. And we know that John lived out in the wilderness, a fulfillment of Isaiah 40, but we're never told of any road construction that he did. As a matter of fact, he wasn't too concerned about road conditions. He was concerned about people's hearts. And so in preparation for the Lord, he was getting people to prepare their hearts by telling them that they need to repent because the Lord is at hand. And when people would come out to him, and John was a hit with the crowds. People heard about him. This is before uh, movies. This is before iPhones. People were kind of hard up for entertainment. And so they heard about this crazy guy who was out in the wilderness preaching and baptizing Jews. And so what do they do? Well, they want to come out to hear what he has to say. And as those crowds come, as they flock to him to be baptized, we see that John isn't very seeker sensitive. What does he do? He calls them a brood of vipers. John, living out in the wilderness, no doubt came upon a snake or two. And yet he wasn't speaking about actual snakes. He was calling his fellow Jews, his fellow Israelites, vipers. And so here he's he's pointing to their hearts. He's telling them to look within, to look at their own hearts and to repent of those sins. He tells them to to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. You see, he wasn't touting a momentary religious experience. This wasn't some uh, wilderness retreat that you could go to and have a one-and-done decision or one-and-done experience. But no, John was demanding a complete and utter change of lifestyle. And boys and girls, that's ultimately what repentance looks like. Repentance literally means a change in direction. It literally means that you are turning around. You are going one way, a way of sin and destruction. And then when you repent, you turn all the way around and you begin pursuing a life of righteousness and holiness. That's what John is demanding of them. And he wants to see 
fruits. He wants to see tangible results. Not just a saying, oh yes, I repent, but a change in lifestyle. And he warns them not to appeal to the fact that they are physical descendants of Abraham. He says, don't even think about saying, well, I have Abraham as my father. Because he says God is able to raise from these stones children of Abraham. The Judean wilderness is very similar to the wilderness we have uh, out here in, uh, in Southern California. And if you go out, if you drive a couple hours east, you'll see a lot of dirt and a lot of rocks. And John has a very similar situation where he could point to a pile of rocks and he can say God can raise from these lifeless, inanimate objects children of Abraham. You see, he was warning them. He could, uh, he's warning them that physical ancestry to Abraham meant nothing in God's sight. John would certainly agree with what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2. For no one is a Jew who is, mere, who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. But it's interesting that in, uh, when John is saying that God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham, he's perhaps saying more than he even realized at the moment. As, as he spoke of God being able to create life from non-life, as we will see in our passage, uh, there, there, more than just children of Abraham are coming to him to be baptized. But he continues to warn his audience in in verse 9 when he says, The axe is laid at the root. See, the Old Testament often spoke of God's judgment in in, in, in the imagery of God being like a lumberjack, cutting down the trees, the tree or the vine which symbolized God's people. You see that, for example, in Psalm 80. Or even in Isaiah chapter 10, God in his judgment would come and cut down his people because of their sin. But it's interesting that John, he doesn't speak about one tree as the corporate people of God, as Israel as a whole. But if you notice there in verse 9, he talks about trees, plural. The axe is laid at the root of the trees. And so what he's doing here is he's highlighting the need for individual repentance and faith. He's calling upon each and every individual as if they are a particular tree that needs to bear forth fruit, otherwise God has his axe laid at the root. He's about ready to cut them down and to throw the trees, the the bad trees, into the fire. And so we see the response of the people. They are cut to the heart in verse 10 as they reply by asking John what they need to do. In other words, what kind of fruit is God looking for? And we see John's reply in verse 11. He answers a very general question with a very specific answer. He who has two tunics should share with him who has none. Now, perhaps you're listening to that today and you think, oh, that's great. I just dropped off three trash bags of clothes at the thrift store. I'm good as far as John is concerned. You need to keep in mind that having more than one tunic or as the Greek is, a ketone, would be a luxury. The ketone was something that, it was a garment that would be worn uh, closely over the skin underneath uh, an outer garment, if you've ever gone to a toga party before. That's essentially what a ketone is. 
And as I said, to have more than one would be a complete luxury. Most people had only one ketone. Some had none. And what John is saying here is that those who are in a position to share, those uh, who, who have more than one, who have an abundance, should share with those. They should have generous, they should be generous with those who do not. As I mentioned, you know, in this day and age, that kind of falls on deaf ears because clothing and food, the other example that John uses, is in abundance, at least in our day and age in 21st century America. And so it's important to understand that what John is saying here is that real needs should be met with real help. And and so perhaps, uh, perhaps what we ought to do as 21st century Americans, rather than clearing out our closet to make room for more, perhaps what we should do in order to love our neighbor is to buy less in the first place. And perhaps rather than going and buying a shirt that costs $3 and was probably used, uh, uh, it was probably made by exploiting people, perhaps we should buy a better quality garment that lasts longer. And perhaps rather than buying a shirt that we wear once and throw away, maybe we can buy a shirt and give it to somebody else or use them longer so that they have a longer shelf life. Same thing with food. We throw away 40% of our food because it's so cheap. But what we see in the biblical model for help, loving and helping our neighbor, first of all, it requires wisdom. There's no fast, easy way to help our neighbor. But uh, uh, the, the next thing we need to have is this men- a different mentality. We don't work so that we can get more stuff. We work so that we can be in a position to help people who are in need. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he could buy a bunch of stuff for himself. No, that's not what he says. Let him work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And so John, to his audience, as a, by way of example, to show this is what fruits of repentance look like, is telling them that they need to be generous with what the Lord has blessed them with. Well, that's not the only question that he gets. It's not just the people saying, what shall we do? But beyond that, we're told of two other groups, two other uh, uh, subgroups of people that come to him and ask specifically what they ought to do to show forth fruits of repentance. And the first of those uh, subgroups are in verse 12. It is the tax collectors. You see, the tax collectors, it's important to understand, were a particularly despised group of people in the ancient world. And it's not just because people didn't like paying taxes. You see, tax collectors were despised by the Jews because they were notoriously unscrupulous. The way in which taxes were were raised uh, in the ancient world is that there would be people who would be in control of a particular region... And then they would have under their employment particular tax collectors who would be given a a specific quota of taxes to raise. And anything that they were able to raise beyond that quota, they could keep for themselves. And so you could see that they would be in a position of power where that power could be easily exploited. And they could abuse that power and enrich themselves by charging more than what they were allotted. And so that's one of the reasons why the Jews hated tax collectors. But what they hated in particular 
were Jewish tax collectors. Why? Because they saw them as turncoats. They were raising revenue for Rome, the occupying powers. And so the, it's the Jewish tax collectors who are probably the identity of these people coming to John saying, what shall we do? It's the Jewish tax collectors, people like Zacchaeus or Levi, his other name being Matthew, who wrote the gospel of Matthew. It's those guys that the, that the other Jews particularly hated. And so you can imagine that as the tax collectors come up to John and say, what shall we do? That the rest of the crowd were standing by just waiting to hear John's response. And, and, and you know, relishing this opportunity to hear John just lay into the tax collectors. And you would expect that they would want John to say something like, stop raising money for that ungodly, uh, the, the ungodly occupying power. Stop working for foreign Gentiles. But no, that's not what John says. What does he say? Collect no more than you are authorized to do. You see, John had no problem with rendering unto Caesar what what was owed to Caesar. He had no problem with paying taxes. He wanted these men to work with honesty and with integrity and not to abuse uh, abuse their power by exploiting other people. Well, likewise, when the soldiers come along, Now, if the previous group, the Jewish tax collectors, were particularly despised, how much more would these men, the soldiers who were in direct employment to the Roman government, Roman and and most likely Gentile soldiers, coming up to John and saying, what shall we do? Now, again, the crowds who are standing by, uh, hearing, uh, uh, eagerly anticipating the response of John, would, would have wanted him to say something like, You need to stop occupying us. You need to get out of the land of promise. You need to, uh, you know, flee the wrath to come. But no, what does he say? He says, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. You see, again, he just warns them against abusing their own power at others' expense. He wants them to be content like the tax collectors. And not to line their own pockets with threat or intimidation. He has no problem with them being in the land of promise, with them occupying them. He just wants them to do it in a humane way. Now, of course, this is just a sampling of the type of things that John the Baptist was telling the crowds. We're told in verse 18 that with many other exhortations he preached. And yet here we see a sampling of of applications of God's law to people's specific situation in life to show them what sort of fruits of repentance they ought to show. But if you want to boil all these things down, whether it be positively being generous with your resources or negatively not exploiting your power and taking advantage of others, you could boil all those things down to the law of love. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13. He says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. 
Now, we might at this point get the impression that John was just a moral, a moral teacher telling people to shape up or ship out, to straighten up and fly right and to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. But that's not the end of John's message. He was well aware that neither he nor his audience would be able to affect the change that he preached, that he demanded in their hearts on their own strength which is why he then directs their attention to another person, to a mightier person, to a person that is stronger and greater than he, one who he says he is not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. You see, in response to queries whether John was the long-awaited Messiah, he emphatically denied it. He says, I am not the Christ in John chapter 1. And here in our passage, he distinguishes between his baptism, his signature uh, act, with the baptism that the mightier one, the coming one, will affect. He admits to the ineffectiveness of his baptism apart from the spiritual reality to which it pointed. And he directed their attention towards a coming baptizer who would baptize them not with water, but with the Holy Spirit who would be able to take their hearts of stone and make them a heart of flesh. Ultimately, in fulfillment of the prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 36, which says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, allusion to baptism, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Here's a promise of not just the delivery of God's law, but but the ability to obey it. That's what John spoke of. John says, I could preach all day till I'm blue in the face, but in in and of myself and in and of yourself, you will never be able to obey the commands. That's why you need the spirit baptizer. That's why you need the Holy Spirit to change your heart of stone and make it to a heart of flesh. To write God's law on your heart so that you not only have the desire, but also the ability to obey. But that's not the only thing that John says the coming one would baptize people with. Did you notice the next? He said with the Spirit and with fire. Now this isn't two separate baptisms. From the Greek it's clear he's talking about the same thing, one in the same baptism. But when he talks about baptizing with the Spirit and with fire, he's talking about the other side of the reality that baptism symbolizes. You see, baptism symbolizes not only the washing away of sins and renewal of the Holy Spirit, but it also symbolizes the destruction of the old man and everything that is opposed to God. We see that very clearly illustrated in yet another illustration that John uses in verse 17 when he speaks of Jesus threshing the floor. 
Well, this is something that I doubt any of us have actually done, and perhaps you're completely unfamiliar with the way in which they would thresh wheat in the ancient world. But what they would do, boys and girls, is they would get the, the wheat, and they would cut it all down, and they would take it to the threshing floor. And what they would do once the wheat was separated from the stalks is that they would take a winnowing fork, which was kind of like a, a mix, like a shovel or a rake combination of those things, and they would scoop up the wheat and throw it up into the air. And the wheat, being heavy, would fall directly down back to the ground. But the chaff, the inedible chaff, the thing that would be uh, uh, from which the wheat uh, grew out of, that was light. And when it would be a windy day, the chaff would blow away. And that way, they would be able to separate the wheat, which you want, you want to keep, and the chaff, which is inedible and is worthless. And so after they have separated the wheat from the chaff, uh, they, would, they would gather up all that chaff, and they would throw it into the furnace, and it would be burned up. That's the illustration that John uses for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says he has his winnowing fork in his hand. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff, or as Jesus said, the sheep from the goats. He speaks of this separation of of the wheat that he will gather into his barns. They're speaking of of that restoration of God's people so that they would be his people and he would be their God. And the destruction of the wicked, the chaff being burned up. In the same way that the unfruitful trees were burned, so also the, the, the inedible chaff will be burned. This is John's message. This is the way in which he was preparing for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what's interesting is that we note that John was not sent to the nations. He was not sent to Rome to preach to Caesar of the impending judgment. No, he was sent to his fellow Israelites. He was sent to the people of God to warn them of the wrath to come. You see, there will come a day in which the nations will be judged. But for now, as Peter tells us, judgment begins in the household of God. And as we, as as Christians living in this present evil age, await for the blessed hope of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we await the second coming of the Messiah, we need to keep in mind that right now, God is currently focused upon gathering, preserving, defending, but also refining and purifying his church. Which means this message that John has, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, is the same message we need to hear today. Repentance and faith in the Christian life, endurance and patience and long-suffering in the midst of suffering in the present evil age, knowing that God is refining and purifying his people, his sheep, his wheat, so that he could gather them, to which then he will direct his attention to the nation's Upon his return. But as we consider yet again the, the, the message of John the Baptist, it's interesting that both that, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all quote from Isaiah chapter 40 in connection with the ministry of John the Baptist. And yet Luke is alone. He is the only gospel writer who extends the quotation of Isaiah chapter 40 to verse 5 which is verse 6 in our passage, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And I think Luke did that on purpose. 
to show that the, that the coming of the Messiah would entail the salvation of all flesh, that is, people from all tribes, tongues, languages, and people. And we see that hinted at even in our passage today as not only Israelites, but Gentile Roman soldiers coming to John, showing signs of the Spirit working in their hearts as they seek to show forth fruits of repentance. And so that's why Jesus came not once, but will come twice. Because the first time he came, he came to reveal the salvation of God. And what he is currently doing is he is gathering his wheat to him. He's separating the wheat from the chaff. He's, he's going into all the nations. And he is taking stones from every nation, every tribe, people, and language, and making them children of Abraham. See, when John said that God is able to, even from these stones, to make children of Abraham, that is precisely what God does. He takes those of us who are spiritually dead, those of us who have a heart of stone, and by his spirit, he gives us the heart of flesh. He, he writes this law on our hearts. He grants to us the gift of repentance and faith, and he enables us to bring forth fruits of repentance to his glory. May God grant to us faith, repentance, and the ability to bring forth fruit as we await the second coming of our Lord and Savior. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you were pleased in the fullness of time to be born of woman, to submit yourself to the law, and to, uh, to, uh, to submit yourself even to death on the cross for us and for our salvation. We thank you also that you have been raised victoriously and that you send out your spirit and you continue to gather, preserve, and defend for yourself a people. And so, Lord, we pray that you would grant to us hearts full of faith and repentance. And may we bring forth all of the fruits of righteousness for your glory and for the good of our neighbor. And we ask this in your name. Amen.